I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon uh, going solo today. Heaps of questions in the Facebook group and wanted to answer as many as I could today. Over 30 questions, so we won't be able to answer all of them, but thank you for taking the time to put them into the group because it's just beautiful fodder that we can't make up, as we say always, and, and I look forward to thrashing out my opinions and answers to the best of my ability today. So let's get into it. So first one, which is an absolute cracker. Brianna Nichols says, mortgage repayment strategies. For example, the difference in approaches when paying a mortgage down if you intend to sell your first PPOR, principal place of residence, to buy your second principal place of residence versus converting your PPR into an investment property when you buy your second PPR. So a bit to unpack here, and, and it has had a heap of interest and likes. So we will expand on this a little bit more, or I will. Um, so first of all, paying down your mortgage is a good thing. When you're living in your home, I consider that bad debt. It's non-tax deductible. It's not income producing. So we want to pay down that or at least reduce the interest, which can be different. So we can pay the mortgage down. We can say, right, our mortgage is 500000 we can pay it down by 50 grand, so it's now 450,000, or we can punch 50K into an offset account, which is essentially doing the same thing. But in our mind, our risk profile, sometimes we say, well, we like, the, like to see that mortgage amount reducing as opposed to the money just sitting against that loan. So apples for apples there, whatever you think you feel better about um, is, is the first part of this. But strategically thinking, if our intent is to sell this property, to buy our second owner-occupier home, which again would be non-tax deductible, my personal thought on this is to keep the money in the offset account so we've got some liquidity about our deposits, right? So we go and sell that first property. If we're buying into the same market, it means depending on the market, it might be uh, we get maximum dollars for when we sell a property, but we then have to pay higher price for when we buy that property. So it all comes out in the wash there, unless we're going into a different market, which means basically a different location or maybe a different dwelling type, and that's that that can happen. Uh, essentially, it's one for one. So I like to keep my uh, money as liquid and fluid as possible in that instance. So I would be sitting it in the offset account for the journey for when the time comes that I want to upgrade to my next PPR, principal place of residence. Now, on the other hand, the next scenario is converting your first principal place of residence 
into an investment property when you buy your second principal place of residence, right? So we're we're now holding our portfolio. And, and in real estate, I like to hold property over the long term and only sell when I when I want to, right? And and build that portfolio over the long journey because the time in the market will always trump timing the market, right? So when we're building a portfolio like this, we've got to be thinking what's our next play. So the first one is right, my principal place of residence. I'm now going to convert that to an investment property and then I'm going to upgrade to buy a second principal place of residence. So again, we need to keep our money liquid from the point of view of getting a deposit for that second PPR. But it's for a different reason because the deposit on that second PPR, we want to pay cash for and we ideally want to put 20% down, but we also want to keep it in the offset so that the debt on our first PPR, we're converting to an investment property, becomes tax deductible because it's an income producing asset, right? Hopefully that makes sense to you. But either way, in both scenarios, Brianna, I believe keeping the money in the offset account is a far better uh, feeling for you. And structurally for tax purposes on the second option, we're better off keeping it in the offset account in, in my opinion. That's what I would be doing. However, overarching, if you feel better about paying down the loan as opposed to sitting in the offset and, and you might get your, your sticky fingers on it and spend it, then knock yourself out and go and pay that mortgage down. But great question. Right. Next one, Tegan Boyd. Pros and cons for buying an investment property in regional Vic and New South Wales. Should we look for cash flow positive or capital growth? By far the most common question I'm getting when we're working strategy with clients in our buyer's agent arm of our business. Now, we look in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, to some extent South Australia, probably not so much the others, right, as a buyer's agent group. Now, when we're looking, ideally, uh, and, and go back a step, 20 years ago, and I and I've often use the 20-year term, 20 years ago, I was informed that capital growth sets you free, cash flow pays the bills. And to this day, I still think that's the case. However, understanding that capital growth is the least thing in our control, right? We can't guarantee the capital growth, but we can guarantee the cash flow. Now, very different situation to say 18 months ago, two years ago, where interest rates might have been 2 3%, now they're 5 or 6%. So our holding costs of running the property as an investor or even an owner-occupier are far greater. So cash flow has more importance than ever over the last sort of five, six, seven years. So yes, we want capital growth, we can't guarantee it, but we can guarantee cash flow and we really need to put an emphasis on that when we're buying because of the holding costs now that weren't there maybe 18 months ago. So if we are looking for capital growth, generally that means a better asset in a better location. So if we're looking, let's say regional Victoria, the, the maybe the top three are Geelong, um, Bendigo and Ballarat right now. At the top end of town there, we're talking a million dollars. So if we went and bought an investment property in, in say, Geelong for a million dollars, it's probably going to rent for about $600 per week, maybe 700 at best, okay? So talking threes um, as a gross yield percentage, 3% or a bit more. Now, that's going to cost you quite a bit to hold per annum, 
even after tax, okay, regardless of what income you're on. So we need to be able to physically handle that cash payment or, or that buffer in our life to run that investment property. Now, if we do our numbers beforehand and we can't hold that cost and it's going to blow us up and we have to sell the property prematurely, defeats the purpose of going to search for capital growth in the in the first place. So my thoughts are is to get a fine balance between growth asset, good location, uh, good dwelling type, um, maybe a good size block of land, and that varies upon location. And the demand for that in a good location, but keeping in mind what cash flow you can handle. And that's why the locker room talk from a sporting sense is never relevant. So what the next person's doing is very different to what you're doing because your situation is totally different. And and that's why, again, plugging the old buyer's agent service for anyone out there who are buyer's agents, that's where they come into play and look at your situation strategically. So should we look for cash flow positive or capital growth? Uh, our income very much determines whether we want a cash flow positive portfolio or not. I've always had an aim, and this was high level again 25 years ago. I wanted my portfolio to run at about 6% gross yield as, a, as an average. Now, I know that I'm not going to get that straight away. I can buy good assets in good locations and over the journey, they end up being 6% gross yield assets. I know that they'll look after themselves. But we can't go too heavily negatively geared to begin with because we reduce our servicing. We it, it, it stops us from buying more property and it may impact our lifestyle because we're using future income to prop up this portfolio. So plenty of ins and outs in that, Tegan. Great question. Regardless of whether it's Regional Vic, New South Wales, WA, Northern Territory, regardless of whether it's city or regional, we need to be understanding the difference of that growth versus cash flow. Do we need a combination of both? Um, and I will say 2022, uh, November 24th or 5th or whatever time I'm recording, cash flow positive property is a lot harder to find than it was 18 months ago purely because the running costs of that property is higher with the interest rate increases uh, in that time frame. So uh, yeah, always good to thrash out, but take into account both. We do run a property analyzer calculator for um, anyone who's interested in running the numbers long before they purchase. Um, so we'll, we'll whack that in the show notes. Good one, Tegan. Okay, Cassandra Stevenson, overcapitalization in first homes. Is adding a second room, e.g. bathroom or bedroom, considered overcapitalization? Now, what I'd say to this, Cassandra, is we're buying a property. It's our first home. I imagine that you're living in it. Well, I'm saying that you're living in it. And we're saying, right, we've got three bedrooms. We want to put in a fourth. Uh, we want to add a bathroom. Are we going to overcapitalize in that property? A more important question would be, do we need those funds for further purchasing or investing, whether it be shares or property? And what type of location are we in that demands that fourth bedroom or second bathroom? Okay. So I don't think we can necessarily overcapitalize if we're going to add a bedroom or a bathroom unless we deck it out to Taj Mahal standards. But what we can do is tie up our cash or increase our debt 
that we otherwise would have used to, to do or, or to commence investing through property or shares going forward. So understand, Cassandra, what the next five years looks like for you. If you don't see yourself doing any investing and you want to maybe use the equity from your first home or use the cash you've got to add that second room um, or uh, through bathroom or bedroom, then absolutely go for that. Uh, But just understand that that will be either increasing your debt or taking your cash that you might be using elsewhere. So it's a bit of an opportunity cost there. Uh, I don't think it's an overcapitalizing thing. It's more of a what are we doing with our money and and what's our next play after this first home um, situation. So yeah, if it's a long-term buy and hold for you, is this your dream home? So maybe a second part of this is are we going to actually live in this for the next 10 years if we can get a extra bedroom and bathroom out of it. If, the, if that's the case, then absolutely, it's a lifestyle choice that you're going to make. Uh, the last final component of this is, well, right now, building materials, yes, they've taken a massive spike in costs, harder to get trades. And so doing a renovation uh, really comes back to what we can afford as well, given that there might be a 20 to 30% increase from uh, from when we last checked. Bob Lovett, how to calculate total capital growth on a property for sale, including capital from claim depreciation over, say, 10 years? Great question. Not one I can answer uh, in its entirety anyway. So someone like Depreciator, who, who are um, quantity surveyors, would be able to look at that in conjunction with your accountant to be able to see that situation for you and your personal portfolio. Aaron Sim, capital growth versus cash flow, which one is better? I think we touched upon this with Tegan's question. Uh, Again, understanding your situation, your cash flow situation, what do you need in your life? What's your servicing like? Uh, Yes, we'd love capital growth, but is it to the detriment of uh, running too slim with cash flow? meaning that we need to sell the property because we can't afford it or we can't afford to go out for dinner or a holiday, et cetera, et cetera. This serial pest in the group, Glenn James, do you use the property solo shows long form to practice for the daily show short form? Short answer is yes, Glenn, and I'm also practicing to break away from M3 and go and do my own thing. So um, that's the answer there. Jack Aranda. Buying IP, investment property, sight unseen, what to consider, also buying investment property during a recession. So won't touch on the recession so much uh, because it's up to interpretation as to what a recession is. Uh, and, and yes, the government may call that we are in a recession as such, but everyone's situation financially is very different. So I don't like to put a blanket over the whole country to say, well, we're in a recession, we don't buy property or don't invest in shares. I think it's an opportunity thing and I think it's um, it's our individual situation. But let's talk about the sight unseen. This is very much topic of debate. A lot of experts and a lot of first-time investors would say never do it. Right, it's fraught with danger. You never know what uh, is is hiding behind the cupboard that could jump out and and affect you and your portfolio five years down the track. Okay, that can be the same when we're walking through inspecting. I call it kicking the tires. 
So I don't have a problem, first of all, buying property sight unseen as long as I've done massive due diligence, right? If you have got a, a problem with that and it's keeping you up at night, you're best to go and visit the place is, is my recommendation to everyone. It depends on your risk profile as, as to whether you want to do it or not. Now, Jack, by asking this question, I believe that you're probably in a situation where you would like to do it or have done it and maybe wanting some verification around it. So first thing I would do is, um, and, and I'm teaching some buyers agents how to become a buyers agent to enter the industry at the moment. And I was ha- chatting to one of them yesterday and we were talking about what research to look for when we see a property on realestate.com. And 95% of our work is done in front of the screen. So things like uh, ABS, so the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, things like SQM research, what's the vacancy rates in the area, um, looking at the owner-rock versus investor, which is from the ABS, um, looking at homes owned outright, looking at the total income and disposable family income in the ABS stats. So there's a lot of information there that we can get on an area long before even visiting that um, particular area itself. We can, um, we can look at Google Earth. We can use RP data if we've got a subscription. Uh, in our team, we use Archistar, which is a little bit more in-depth and talks about flooding and bushfire and heritage and all those sort of things. Uh, we can look at um, council websites to see what the development requirements are, if that's a strategy that we're looking for when we buy. So there's a whole heap of research that you can be doing online and you might spend an hour, two hours doing that to to get yourself clued up with the area, first of all, and then the street using uh, Nearmap or or Google Earth. Now, Nearmap is quite expensive, but Google Earth is free. Probably not quite as up to date, but it's a starting point. Then we can jump on the phone and we can talk to property managers, we can talk to agents, we can talk to locals, we can uh, locals being trades. Uh, long before we look at any of the properties there. When we find a property, we can use the agent for a video. They can do live videos. We can uh, we can say, look, turn left there. I just want to check this out. Um, look up at the roof for me. Look down at the carpet for me. We can get them to do whatever we want as though we were walking through there ourselves. We can then lean on the locals for a building and pest inspection. We can thoroughly look through that, ring the uh, ring the inspectors, go through that report, fine-tooth comb, uncover anything that might be alarming for us. So in conjunction with all that, we've done a lot of research online. We've got to understand the area. We've un- understood the demographics, right? Notice we're not talking about people's online forums saying this area sucks or this area is great or you should invest here, right? We're taking it into our own hands to go and do our own research and then ask good questions of people that are on the ground that have been there longer than us, right? Once we've done that, we've got our building and pest, we've got our videos live, we've, we've spoken to a few locals, we're happy with, our, with the offer that we've placed, we're, we've got our finance approval, uh, we still haven't committed to this property. If we're still not content, that's when we might jump on a plane or, or, or get in the car and drive there. But if we feel okay about that, then we can go and transact on this property sight unseen, no problems at all, okay? So I hope that helps you, Jack, and anyone else out there who's thinking of doing it. If you feel as though, yeah, look, it's probably not for me, um, I want to outsource this, then obviously that's when someone like a buyer's agent comes into play. 
Well, we uh, some great questions already. Let's take a break and then we'll come back and answer some more. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, next one. So, Caitlin Moore, really good question. First home buying. Should I wait for my partner to have a stable income slash career to buy a PPOR, principal place residence, as a first property, or should I look at rent vesting now rather than waiting for the right time and get into the market earlier? Now, really interesting, this one. Caitlin, I think it depends on your servicing, how much you can lend. Now, if you've got a deposit that's adequate and you've got the lending ability now to get what you want as your first property, then knock yourself out and go and do it. I think time in the market will always trump sort of trying to time it or or waiting another two years and that uncertainty of what the markets are doing in that two years, right? If if it grows, you, you're not taking advantage of it. So if the time's right now and you can lend what you want, I think get yourself into it, right? Rent vesting is a, a great option if you're wanting to build a portfolio and you're not fussed about living in your own home. If, you, if you're not fussed, if if you can't paint the walls or, or replace the carpets or do what you want to it there, rent vesting is a great option. However, we're in a time at the minute where it is much harder to get rentals and you are seeing rent increases wherever you look, right? So we've got to understand the holding costs of renting versus the mortgage repayments and you might find that they're very similar, okay? So when you say, Caitlin, the right time uh, and get into the market earlier, I, I'm more inclined to get into the market earlier if you can. If you can't do that, you haven't got the servicing and your partner needs to get a stable income or, or slash career to get that extra loan, then kick up the bum, get them to, uh, to, to get that stable income and, uh, and then get in still as quick as quick as you can because the want is there and that's half the battle. It's now about logistics of how can we lend money and our, our deposits. 
All right, so Ben Tomasian, at what point is paying LMI more beneficial than saving the rest of a 20% deposit for a first home buyer, assuming average wage, house price, and saving rates? Okay, so assuming average wage, uh, house price, and saving rates is one thing, but how about assuming average capital growth? Okay, that's the first thing I would be looking at is where am I buying? What has the last 10 years done in that market? What's it averaged out at? And if it's maybe 6 or 7% as a, an average, which a lot of good locations around the country have been, it probably leans itself towards paying the LMI as opposed to saving the rest of the 20% deposit that may take let's say two years, and I'll give you a real-life example or one that's made up. Um, 500K property. We might be paying, let's say, 10K in LMI, and if it takes us even another 12 months to save that 20% deposit, if this 500K property I, I purchase, it cops me another 10 in LMI, so it adds that to the to the mortgage that I've got, and this property gets 5% capital growth in the first year, which I think is reasonable. That property's gone up 25K, but it's only cost me an extra 10 in LMI to get into the market. So I'm 15K ahead in that example. So basically, the property only has to go up 2% in the first year to break even again from your LMI cost, right? So I think in most cases, unless it's say three months or six months in order to, to get that 20% deposit rounded out, you would uh, look at LMI if you're okay with that. If you're okay with that being capitalised into the loan and having that extra uh, repayment amount and your, your mortgage broker's on the, on the same page as well. So it does lean to having a, a really good team of people around you, which is a sophisticated mortgage broker who can look at both options for you um, but yes, in an ideal world, if you're buying your first home, you do want that 20%. Don't get me wrong. However, it's an opportunity cost that we may have to factor in going forward. Another question here, how much is too much property debt as a percentage of income taking into account rental income? Now, I don't have any sort of percentage that I work to, which might sound extremely blasé, but I do have an understanding of what my portfolio is doing and what my personal life is doing. So let's just break that apart for a minute. Personal life and business are extremely separate. So my business life or my business side of my life is not my buyer's agent group or coaching for the minute, but my property investing. So my portfolio, what is it doing from a cash flow perspective? When I take into account my rents versus the running costs of all my properties, what is the outcome before tax and after tax? And I get a, a really good understanding of that and I have a property buffer that covers any shortfall if there is any, right? So understanding that every year and have an annual general meeting with yourself and understand what the next 12 months will look like for you. So that's on the business side of things. On the personal side of things, and we talk about it all the time on these shows, is to understand your cash flow situation, have your emergency buffers, and, and again, the percentage that you're paying on your mortgage or renting. Again, uh, like Glenn mentions, 30%. A lot of people out there say 30%, and the government, I think, say if you're over 30% of your total income, 
uh, on your mortgage that's considered mortgage stressful. Okay, that's great, but if you've got no loans and you and you don't go on holidays, you don't go out and whatever else. If you're if you can manage fifty, okay, then knock yourself out. Um, I don't personally have a percentage on that either, but understanding the ins and outs of your cash flow is imperative, and you must get that worked out again long before you take on that next property and the debt associated with that property. Okay, so when we're building out portfolio plans for people, we're looking 20 years in advance. We can't guarantee what prices will be like in 20 years, but we can definitely factor in what the cash flow would be like in their life, i.e. you're on 100k a year now, uh, you're saving X amount per month now, you've got these buffers, you're likely to have kids in the next three to five years, you, you're likely to uh, go on an overseas holiday or go around Australia, so let's factor in that. And we can map out a reasonable plan. Now, that will change probably every 12 months or 12 minutes, but we've got a starting point that we're motivated to run with and then we can start to take some action there. So um, great question in respect to how much debt as a percentage of income. But for me, and you may find someone out there that says, yeah, this is the debt you have as a percentage of income. But for me, it's just understanding what you're comfortable with and understanding the ins and outs of your portfolio, both in your business as your, as your investment portfolio and in your personal situation. Okay. Uh, this question and I must answer this one because um, she is a long-time listener of the show, Lauren Carr. Depreciation benefits, age of investment properties. So very short and succinct with the, with the uh, statement there, really no question. But it's a, a lot of people come to me and say, well, my accountant says I need to buy a newer property so I can claim some depreciation, right? Now what that is is basically saying, a property was built in, say, 2020. It's two years old. Um, it's going down in value because the building is getting older. So as a result of that, I can claim the depreciation on that building, depending on the size of the building and the quality of the build. I can claim that against my taxable income when, when I go and do my tax return, right? So Lauren, I think this is a byproduct of investing. It's not a total focus to just say, my accountant says, minimize my tax. So I'm going to actually go and buy a new property, right? We've got to think about the overarching reasons for going buying property. Is it capital growth? Is it cash flow? Which one has more prominence over the other? And then looking at the indicators. So we look at, okay, location. We look at the yield of the property. We look at the type of property that's going to give us the best outcome for rent and also the best outcome for for um, growth, right? So we're looking at all those things and depreciation and the age of the property is one factor out of many. I don't think it should be the sole factor of going to buy property, right? Now, in the last few years where first homeowners have been able to have these amazing um, grants and concessions through COVID and state grants and, and uh, government grants and, and every grant under the sun, they then 12 months after living in it, rent them out and claim great depreciation. But if those properties weren't in good locations with good supply and demand in check, low vacancy rates, um, well-built, demand for rent, 
and the location itself wasn't overrun with investors, right, then they'll do well for the long term and they'll get some depreciation benefits. So it's a win-win, absolutely. However, if we're just going in purely just saying, right, let's get me a property that's three, five years old, I'll claim some depreciation benefits and, and I'm, uh, I'm getting an extra 3K back in my tax, that is minuscule compared to 10% growth on a 500k property is 50 grand. Okay, so that's my thoughts on that, Lauren. All right, uh, time is flying. So, a couple more. Stephen Williams, great question. Would a house from the block ever be a good investment? Now, I don't look at the block too much, I, I see a lot of fodder around um, the, the block media and. and uh, paid too much or got ripped or whatever it was like there's a, there's a lot of hype and and fluff and and bubble in the media but I, I tuned into the last one because my kids are interested in it so what I saw I think it was in Gisborne where uh, one went for a million dollars or more over the others they made a, a few a few bucks and were pretty disappointed right if you were there in the auction room first of all how much emotion has been involved in that heaps, massive amount of emotion, not only because you're bidding next to 10, 15 other bidders, but you've got the whole country, the whole nation watching you. There is a temptation to keep putting your finger up. There's a temptation to keep bidding so that you're then the winner, the proud owner of one of the block uh, properties that have been built. So that for me is a no-no. The second part of it is have we done the fundamentals? Have we looked at locations? Have we looked at uh, where it is and its demand, right? Now, someone did make the comment um, somewhere that whilst their acreage properties in Gisborne, which is a, a nice area, close enough to Melbourne, um, it has a lot of upside, they're also right on top of each other. So would I buy an acreage property to be right on top of the next door neighbour? Probably not, okay? So the design of that uh, maybe not uh, maximised as well as it could be, but for probably the theatre of the block, it worked quite well. So uh, my vote on that, Stephen, is generally no. I know there's been a few in Richmond um, and a couple of inner city suburbs in Melbourne over the journey. Again, generally, I think they would be overpriced and uh, because of that pure emotion of auction and the hype around all of that um, being a TV show. But, uh, yeah, interesting one. All right, last one. Scott Critchley says, holding investment properties into retirement, how much debt to hold and pay off? Now, again, this question is a very common one because uh, we deal with a lot of a lot of you listening are, are in your 20s, early 30s. Um, some, of, some of us are older than that, but generally speaking, I think census said in the group that we were 28, right? So if that's the average, we're somewhere from 30 to 35 years from accessing super, maybe transitioning to retirement, etc. So we don't have to worry too much about how much we need in retirement because it's not quite relevant to us yet, but we're on this wealth creation journey where we're saying, we need to set ourselves up for 30 years' time. Right? Now, if we're listening, saying, well, I'm five years from retirement or I'm 10 years from retirement, that's a totally different story. And our investment strategies absolutely change. It's now a case, and, and I spoke to someone on a clarity call uh, about three weeks ago on this, 
they were five years from wanting to retire. And they were saying, we want to buy more property, buy more property, and, and just so that we're set up for, for 20 years' time. Okay, well, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing it. And from a property geek, that is a big statement because why wouldn't you buy property? We like it. It goes up in value. It's solid. It's, um, it's reliable. I can touch it and feel it and everything else. However, if they're five years from retiring, we don't want to go into retirement A, with no tax benefits because we're not getting a major income to claim the running costs of the property and we don't, B, want to go in negatively geared. So that leans itself to getting a highly positive cash flow property, something in the order of 8 or 9% gross yield. Where do we go and find that right now? It's probably going to be something that's extremely regional. Would I do that five years from retirement? Probably not or no is my answer. Um, so back to your question, Scott, uh, Scott, how much debt to hold and pay off? How much do you need to retire on? How much have you got in your super that's going to contribute to the running costs of your retirement versus how much uh, is the property portfolio going to give you if you pay off X, right? I think always cash is king. You've got to have a good chunk of cash in your life to be able to have flexibility and sleep at night. So I would be more inclined to keep my cash aside, whether it's in offset accounts, and pay less debt down and, and just keep that liquid for retirement versus paying more down and not being able to extract that back out unless I sell the property. So it's, a, it's an interesting one and, it, and this is just an absolute scream for case-by-case scenarios, Scott. What you're comfortable with to pay down uh, your sleep at night factor on that, how much you need to live off in retirement and also the cash flow that your property portfolio is already giving you now. So there's no one size fits all, um, but uh, it, it's great to be able to thrash it out just to understand that you've got options because you don't want to ever back yourself into a corner where, oh, damn, I wake up, I shouldn't have done that. Now I can't untangle that. An example of that is paying 200k off a property just so I can get an extra 10k a year of, of passive income, but I've lost that 200k. The only way I can get that back out is to pull it out as equity, which I can't do because I'm not earning an income because I'm retired, or I have to sell the property and that might not be ideal either because this thing might perform for me for another 20 years. Jay Baker, one last question quickly. Considerations for subdivision. Um, Jay, this is a, a really organic plug for a development academy I put together. We did a masterclass around the country on the M3 tour. Uh, we videoed it. I've got a property analyzer tool that uh, does a, a subdivision development feasibility. There's about an hour of video content there. We're actually uh, launching it in, in, an, in a few weeks. So we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, check that out if you want to. Anyone else who's looking at subdivisions or developments, that's a really good starting point if you want to go on that journey of being uh, a sophisticated investor. Thank you for allowing me into your ears today. Hope you've benefited from some of those questions. Again, thanks again for those awesome questions. Um, If you've got anything that you want to add, sure to put it in the Facebook group. If you're not on Facebook, feel free to um, DM or, yeah, send Glenn a message. Probably it's better than me. Um, Oh, no, you can can send me a message. That's fine. Um, Or Emily. Emily's not here today, but she will be back for the next episode. Until next time, talk soon.
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.